The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Rona Novik will now present her lecture, The Road to Happiness. Welcome, everybody. I am Rona Novik, and welcome to The Road to Happiness. Um, it, the Road to Happiness, by the way, starts in the tea room. Um, it ends with the chocolates. You know, that's a stop, and then hopefully you make your way here. Um, but really, it is my extreme pleasure to be here, to be with you at JLI, and, and um, to share some thoughts. A little background about me, just kind of truth in advertising. I am here. As a psychologist, I am not a Jewish learning specialist. I do not have credentials in Jewish thought and learning. Uh, hopefully, I kind of have the credentials of living a rich and meaningful Jewish life. But I am a clinical psychologist, and so I'm going to, and I'm an educator. I serve as the dean of the Israeli Graduate School of Jewish Education at Yeshiva University. So my approach is going to be to, from the psychological lens, weave in what we know in Jewish thought and in spirituality about a number of topics. And our topic today is on happiness. So first, I want us to think together about why happiness is important and why we should consider it. This may seem like a silly question. And believe it or not, the field of psychology, my field of clinical psychology, for many years didn't ask the question didn't ask the question about happiness. It asked the question about illness. It focused on illness and disease. The study of psychology was the study of human frailty and human failings. And only about 25 years ago, in just an absolute wonderful, ironic turn, the very psychologist who became famous for studying depression and a phenomenon called learned helplessness began the field of something called positive psychology. And the field of positive psychology noted the very important phenomena that we can go into, for example, an inner city or a particular village, and we can study all of those people who are ill, and we will learn something about human nature. But wouldn't it be more important and more illustrative for us to go into that same city with the same problems, with the same pollution, with the same environmental stresses, and study the, per the people who thrive, and study the successes and the people who make it? And that is what positive psychology does. And that is why happiness is important. Because when we study people who thrive and survive despite life's challenges and difficulties, we find that they have discovered the road to happiness. And that happiness is good for our health. It is, by the way, not just good for our mental well-being. Happiness is good for our physical well-being. All kinds of medical difficulties are alleviated if we are a happy person. Our relationships are better, and there's a direct link between happiness and spirituality, which we will get to today. What, we, what I want to do in the hour that we have, which is a very small amount of time to get happy, but we're, we're going to try, um, is to debunk some myths about happiness, to consider our own belief systems and how they either fuel happiness or present roadblocks for us, to consider the advice of sages, both sages in the Jewish realm of thought and sages in psychology and in modern medicine, and then start on our own journey to happiness. So first we have to ask ourselves, do you believe that a new car will make you happy? Both my son and, and my husband and I are actually shopping for cars at the moment. And I'll tell you right now, a new car might make you happy, but the process of buying a car will never make anyone happy. I feel like it's the most horrible process to live through. Um, do you think you'd be happier with a broken leg than with a bum knee? Do you think that suffering a loss or trauma precludes being happy in the future? Now, these are not um, arbitrary questions. They're questions that we've explored. And what psychologists have discovered is that there are certain biases within the way that the human mind works 
that get in the way of happiness. We make decisions and we shape our beliefs based on predictions, on what we think will happen. But it turns out that human beings are woefully inadequate at crystal ball predictions. We judge the future inaccurately based on three, uh, four fallacies in phenomena. The crystal ball fallacy, the fond memory fallacy, a distortion between good and bad, and the illusion of the benefits of increased choice. And we'll look at each one of these. And as we look at them, I want you to think about whether or not this is something that happens to you, that you fall prey to, that maybe this fallacy happens in your head some of the time. Um, and I apologize, I don't know why on the slides it smushed the sentences together, but here's what a crystal ball fallacy says. Basically, our predictions about the future are almost always overblown. We overestimate intensity and duration of future emotional reactions. We say, oh my gosh, if that happened to me, it would be the end of life as I know it. I could never handle it. It will be terrible. And I'm telling you, all you have to do is watch the news today and you hear story after story of people talking about how they rose above things they never believed they could deal with. A, chronic, a, a tragic accident, an injury, something that gives them a new purpose, a new challenge. This morning on the news, I just happened to see a woman whose leg was amputated after uh, she served in the military after a tragic event in, during her military service. She has now summited 14 peaks. She has climbed 14 mountains with one leg. Having just been in Colorado, I could barely climb one mountain with two legs. So um, really quite an accomplishment. But if you would have asked her beforehand, she might have been subject to this bias and say, oh, my goodness, if I lose a leg, I won't be able to go on. It will be terrible. I won't be able to function. Bad events are less intense and more transient than predicted. We always think a bad event is going to be horrible and long-lasting. We won't get through it. And good events, we think, are going to be less intense and briefer. We think, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this, and it's not going to be so great. Um, healthy people often say, when they're healthy, no heroic measures. I don't want to be kept alive. I had actually a neuropsychology professor who said he wanted tattooed on his chest. Just let me die. You know, no heroic measures. I don't want to be a vegetable. I don't want to be hooked to tubes. I don't want to. But what we find when people actually confront the need for chronic types of life-supporting measures, they actually accept them and often find a quality of life that is beyond anything they would have expected. 60% um, said they would want treatment to the end, even if it gave them one week of quality life. Once it happens, um, Loa Lena, we should never know and have to be in those situations. But more often than not, we look forward and we say, oh, I would never want to be like that. But you find yourself sometimes coping in those situations in ways you would not imagine. The fond memory bias. We are very inaccurate in remembering the past. We have these lovely lenses. We think about things with rosy glasses or we think about them in very negative ways. What we remember is the valence. We remember it was good or it was bad. What we forget is the intensity. We don't record. Our brains don't record. They don't have a tracking for how big the bad or good was, just that that was a good or a bad thing. And our current thoughts and feelings influence our recall of past events. So students who do really well on a test will now tell you, after they've gotten their grade, oh, it wasn't hard. I wasn't really nervous about it. I didn't worry at all. Because their current experience is influencing their past memory. We also have something, Kahneman uh, was a Nobel Prize winning um, uh, mathematician and uh, 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 behavioral economist, is what he studied out of uh, Hebrew U in Israel. Uh, Kahneman worked with Tarski. Um, he identified something called peaks and endings bias. You don't recall the entirety of any event. You rely on the peaks and the valleys. The, the big and, and very lousy moments are what we remember, but we don't get 
the whole picture. If you want a really wonderful book about how fluky our brains are in the way that we work, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is just marvelous. It's long and it's hard, but it's worth it to kind of understand, again, the the biases um, that we experience. The good-bad distortion bias. We think quick and large and short-term. Distress and pleasure are always going to be either worse or better than, um, than, and, than chronic. We think that it would be better to just have it over with than to have long-term small problems. Let me just have rip the Band-Aid off. Let me have a big problem. But the reality is that chronic distress, even low-level, is much worse. It's much worse to our medical and to our mental well-being. For example, we think, oh, let me get a great big lottery payoff. It'll be terrific. I'll win, you know, the $40 million jackpot. But in fact, happiness boosts come more and are more persistent for a small payout that happens consistently. Get $100 a week. You're going to be happier than getting $40 million in one first. Lottery winners and accident victims with both their ups and downs, return to their pre-trauma or pre-event level of happiness within six months. Those big events give you a very huge offset in your happiness, but it doesn't last. And finally, the final illusion I want to talk about is the illusion of choice. We think choice is great, right? I want to be able to go into the CVS aisle and buy one of 75 different types of toothpaste. I want with whiteners. I want tartar protection. I want mint. I want no mint. I want sparkling, not sparkling. In fact, too many option, options lead us to depression. We get quickly overwhelmed. I'm going to date myself here, but in high school, one of my assigned readings was a book by Alvin Toppler called Future, Cho- Future Shock. And he has a chapter on overchoice. In fact, when they published the book, it's a mass market paperback. When they published the book, one of the, the kunces, one of the twists, is they published it with a million different colors. It came in pink and orange and blue and yellow and purple and green. And you would go into the store and you'd like spend an hour deciding, do I want the pink one or the blue one? Do I want? They're all the same book. It's just different color cover. Um, extensive choices, unproductive. Procter & Gamble, toothpaste makers, decreased 26 types of head and shoulder shampoo they had to 15 and increase their sales by 10%. Too much choice confuses us. It depresses us. We think we want unlimited choice. We think anything that limits our choice is going to make us unhappy. But in fact, having a paradigm that limits our choice actually makes us happier. Okay, so can money buy happiness? You know, how many people had parents who said, you know, fall in love with anyone, but if they're rich, that much better. You know, everything in life is easier if you just have money. You can't buy happiness, but it doesn't hurt. Well, in 1965, 82% of college students said what was important was finding meaning, and 42% said what was important was doing well. By 1998, only 35% said finding meaning, and 74% said it's important that we're well off. We have this fallacy that what's important is financial success. But in fact, no one has ever found that financial uh, wherewithal buys happiness. Um, My my colleague, David Pelkovitz, first introduced me to the term affluenza, the disease that is running rampant through our culture, the affluence that, like a flu virus, taxes our strength and leaves us weakened. And the problem with having is that it leads to something called relative deprivation. The more you have, the more you then are elbow to elbow and shoulder to shoulder with other havers, with other people who have means and have wealth. And then you look around and you say, well, they have a nicer car and they have a bigger house and they put a pool in and they're taking nicer vacations. And so you want more and you feel less successful. David Myers talks about the American paradox that from 57 to 1998, we were twice as rich but no greater indicators of happiness uh, nationwide. The divorce rate doubled, teen suicide tripled, violent crime quadrupled. Money in our culture, in our climate, doesn't make us happy. That's not to say that poverty is the answer to all happiness. We're, We're talking here about affluence. 
Now, here's the other thing about money. Classic study. I love this study because it ties to what is it about money that makes us happy. Well, if I give you $50 and tell you you can buy anything, I'm going to tell you you're going to be happy. I'm going to test you. You're going to have a boost in your happiness. You'll be happy. You'll be at the mall. You'll buy yourself a nice pair of shoes, a nice sweater. If one can buy any of those anymore for $50, it's an old study. But okay, you'll get a boost in happiness. But that boost in happiness will be short-lived. It will rapidly erode. If I give you the same $50 and tell you, you have to use it to give to somebody or something else. You have to give to duck or charity. You have to give it to a friend. You have to give it to your mom to buy her, you know, to go out to dinner with your dad. You have to give it to your kids to go have fun. You have to give it to someone else. Similar happiness boost, but it lasts. Money doesn't buy our happiness. Giving gives us happiness. Generosity gives us happiness. Money is what allows us to be generous. But the money directly is not what makes us happy. So what it does make us happy and how do we bring it into our lives? I want to introduce you to the four F's of happiness. Friends and family, forgiveness, faith and meaning, and fun and flow. And let's look at each of those separately and think about what's our paradigm for how we make sure that we bring these four F's into our lives in a meaningful way. Kohelet makes the very clear point, two are better than one. They have a greater benefit from their earnings, but most importantly, if one falls, one can raise the other. Woe to him who's alone without a companion to help raise him. We are happiest when we have people in our lives that we care about and who care about us. Friends and family are critical. Feeling connected to community is critical. People who are more integrated with their community are less likely not only to experience um, uh, illness like colds, but premature death. They live longer. If you don't have a friend, by the way, go get one. You're going to live longer. So the most important thing you can do for your health is to get friends. Um, connectedness is as powerful a protective factor as smoking is a risk factor. There's a classic study of a town in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, called Rosetta, Pennsylvania. It was studied since the 1950s, and it had consistently, compared to national and local averages, lower heart attack risks than all the neighboring towns. And I have to tell you, it's in an area of Pennsylvania where coal mining was rampant, not the best ecological situation, but people were healthier in Rosetta, Pennsylvania than in every place around them than in the rest of the country. And scientists wanted to understand why are they so healthy. It turns out that all of the immigrants in Rosetta came from the same Italian village. And for years and years and generations, until about the 80s, they kept their Italian cultures, they kept their connections. It was a village from Italy transported into rural Pennsylvania. And it was that sense of community that's the only factor that's been identified that was keeping people healthier and happier. Starting in the 1980s, the younger generation rejected the ways of the past and started being more connected to the general, broader culture. The rate of myocardial infarction, the rate of heart, heart attacks went up and climbed higher than in neighboring towns. Community, connection, family, friends, they're insulators. They make us, um, they make us happier and they keep us healthier. A survey of 800 college graduates showed that those people who valued income, high income and monetary success over friendship, um, rated themselves as much less happy than those who um, saw friendship and family as important. And finally, getting married has the happiness equivalent of quadrupling your income. I mean, imagine that. If I could, I'd get married again. You know, if it's that good, my gosh, I could use four times my income. Um, no, it, it really, uh, it, it, not that it's without, you know, it's, it's work and stress, but family is uh, very important. So that's friends and family. And one of the things that I think all of us have to think about as our lives are unbelievably hectic, unbelievably virtual. We spend so much of our time on our devices and connecting in non-direct um, non ways that we have to think about, are our connections real? I'll just tell you one 
little study about that recently that I think is phenomenal. The, the, um, they looked at students who had to study for a high-stakes test, and half of the students got a phone message from mom where you could hear mom's voice. Mom telling you, go for it, you studied really well, you're going to do great, and half of the students got a text message. Only the ones who got the human voice had decreased levels of anxiety when they took the test. The human voice, human touch, human contact matters. It fuels our connections. Now, we may, I, I know that my three-year-old granddaughter is so, for a long time, she thought that, you know, we were this size because she doesn't live near us and we only existed in a little box. And then she'd see us, wow, you're very big, Safdie. Um, I know that there's a younger generation that's very comfortable with text messaging and that's very comfortable with, with you know, um, Instagramming and Skyping and, and I, uh, FaceTiming. We're, we are in transition and there may be a time when our, our brains and our bodies respond in the same way to virtual contact. But for those of us in the room, we're all old enough that the real contact still matters. And we do need to think about for ourselves, for our family, for our children, making sure that we balance some of the virtual contact with some very real human contact. The next F of happiness will seem strange because what does forgiveness have to do with happiness? Uh, forgiveness is, by the way, a major teaching in Jewish thought and in Jewish faith. We are in the season from Tisha B'Av to Rosh Hashanah. We are in the period of the, the Haftarot of Consolation. We're reading as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Judgment. We're reading all about these themes of forgiveness and of repentance. Um, and uh, Rabbi Dr. Svi Hirschweinreb says, you know, we're encouraged to forgive others and we have to seek forgiveness from those against, um, those against whom we have sinned. The Talmud, there are numerous sources from Jewish thought that we can bring that emphasize the importance of uh, forgiveness and the value of it. And from a psychological point of view, there is no question that holding grudges that looking for revenge and holding on to resentment are literally eating you up from the, outs, from the inside out. They are happiness busters. You cannot be a happy person if you are unforgiving. You just can't. People who respond with anger and resentment and revenge fantasies to interpersonal offenses are at greater risk for premature death. This is not an arbitrary, I'm not just saying this because, you know, touchy-feely psychologist, it's good, you should be nice, you should forgive. It's actually medically contraindicated to be resentful. Um, those who hold grudges more likely to experience negative emotions and to have higher pulse, higher blood pressure. Now, here's the really important thing. Forgiveness and absolution are not the same thing. Forgiving someone doesn't mean I don't hold you responsible. It doesn't mean I don't um, see that you did something wrong. Forgiveness is not endorsing your negative behavior. It is simply saying, I'm letting go of the negative feelings, and I'm going to experience some kind of understanding or mercy. Very highly related to this idea of forgiveness is gratitude, an attitude of thankfulness and appreciation. Now, um, an attitude of gratitude is incredibly important in fueling uh, happiness. And it is unbelievably easy to cultivate. There is study after study after study on gratitude that talk about the practice of writing in a journal at the end of every day three things that you appreciate and that you're thankful for. And that that simple act changes us emotionally. It changes our perspective. And remember, before this, we talked about the F of friends and family. Who do you want to be with? Who do you want to connect to? The vengeful, resentful, 
angry, hostile person who every time you see them says, you know, I remember a few years ago you weren't so nice, and I remember you didn't do that, and you didn't come to my party, and I didn't like that. And, or do you want to be with the person who says, I appreciate having you in my life. I appreciate, thank you so much for what you did for me. I really appreciate that. Thank you for something. Who, who shows you gratitude? People who are gracious, who experience and share their feelings of gratitude are people we want in our lives. They're people we want to be with. We like them. It's nice to be around people who show gratitude. The next F, faith and finding meaning. Another great read, if you have not read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, it's probably one of the greatest books ever written, and it's one of those books where every third sentence is a quote you just want to put on your refrigerator door. Every third sentence is something you say, this is my message for life. Um, he was a um, uh, psychologist writing in pre-war Germany, in, in Europe. What um, man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. A life of meaning is not necessarily a life that is simple or easy or free from conflict. What Frankel is saying is meaning is about finding a struggle that has purpose and moving us forward. Um, actually, my husband, as we were walking in, he said, why do we Jews always retreat? Such a negative word, retreat. Really, weiter. We should be advancing. This should be the Jewish learning advancement. It really should be about us moving forward. And just my little soapbox, I am also very, very distressed when people talk about Jewish continuity. Because continuity means keeping the same thing that we've always had. Judaism is a religion of growth. The last thing we are are stagnant. We do not want this generation to redo last generation's learning or growth or mistakes. We want it to build. We are builders. Jewish people are thinkers and builders and developers and growers. And continuity is not good enough for us. We want to advance. Okay, that's my soapbox. Um, Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, nobody can turn a phrase as well as he can. More than we have faith in God, God has faith in us. He lifts us every time we fall. He forgives us every time we fail. He believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. He mends our broken hearts. I never cease to be moved by the words of Yeshayahu. Even youths grow tired and weary and the young may stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. They soar on wings like eagles. They run and don't grow weary. They walk and don't grow faint. They have purpose. They have meaning. We're, we're going somewhere. There's a pathway here. The, the uh, animamin is clear in saying, I have purpose. I have faith. I have a me There's a meaning in my life. This, the prayer of the animamin uh, makes it very clear how central it is to our Jewish belief and being that we are individuals who carry faith with us. Um, we know, by the way, that actively religious people, actively spiritual people, are much less likely to become delinquent, to become drug dependent, to divorce or suicide. Now, I have to just as an aside tell you that I'm not that old. But when I, when I was in graduate school, uh, learning to become a clinical psychologist, and I was not in, you know, Iceland or a place that doesn't know from Jews. I had many Jewish faculty professors who offered to, um, when they, when I, you know, said that I would not be able to attend something on the Sabbath, they offered to cure me of my, my, you know, delusions and my you know, horribly archaic and antiquated belief system. Well, fast forward 20 years or more, we won't talk about how long ago I was in graduate school, um, and I'm giving workshops at psychiatric facilities on spirituality and mental health. So we have come to understand from a time when spirituality was seen as a sign of illness, weakness, delusional thinking, 
to recognizing the value and the role that spirituality plays in the lives of patients. If you do a a search now in peer-reviewed medical journals on spirituality and pain management, spirituality and nursing care, spirituality and life issues, spirituality and recovery, you will find dozens of articles of people studying the really critical role that spirituality plays in physical health, sometimes in ways that we have yet to understand. Um, years, years ago, when I was doing my internship, one of my colleagues announced that she was leaving the field of clinical psychology to go study the relationship between um, stress and anxiety and cancer. And again, this was many years ago, and we all thought, are you crazy? How could there be a relationship between you know, what you think in your head and your psychological status and cancer? And we all now know, well, duh, there's huge relationship between stress and anxiety and the chemicals that those, that those generate in our brain and immunological response. In the same way, happiness releases endorphins. Happiness has a chemical, biological um, correlate in our brains. Spirituality, spiritual highs, moments of transcendent faith have a neuropsychological uh, substrate that has an impact on our medical as well as our mental well-being. Um, so it's, it's good for us. And in trauma, religious people are able to find happiness. Just a word about trauma for a moment and also about meaning. When Hurricane Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, many people were relocated into the, the Superdome in New Orleans? Superdome, into the Superdome. Um, many people were living there, and there were not enough social workers, counselors, psychologists to service the emotional needs of people who were living and were homeless, who didn't know if they'd ever get back to their homes, were totally displaced. And people noticed that the adolescents were particularly at risk. They were looking very depressed. They were beginning to show delinquent behavior. But they didn't have enough counselors to deal with the mental health needs of the adolescents. So they asked the adolescents, they got a whole bunch of teenagers together, and they said, listen, we need water distributed to the elderly in the dome. We need you guys to organize water distribution to the elderly. That's the only mental health intervention that was done. And it's not a mental health intervention, and it cured all the depression, all the delinquency, because it gave them a purpose. It gave them meaning. It gave them a pathway in their life that said, you're important, you matter, and you're making a difference. So in trauma, uh, people who have spiritual pathways, who have a sense of meaning, are able to find happiness. People high in spiritual commitment are twice as likely to rate themselves as happy. Now, although I've talked about a happiness substrate in the brain, we don't yet have a test for it. Like you can't go into your doctor and say, oh, could you give me my happiness level, take blood, tell me what's my happiness quotient today, you know, what's my pulse ox, you know, how much oxygen, how much happiness is flowing through my body. Um, so the only way we have of knowing how happy people are is by asking them. Um, and spiritual people tend to report themselves, see themselves as much more happy. The last F I want to talk about, and then I'll make sure we have time for questions today, is something called flow, which is directed, related to fun. Flo is not the lady who does the commercials with the, what is, I can't remember what commercial, what progressive, I knew it was a P, I was going to say prudential. She's not the progressive lady. It's Flo with a W. Um, Rav Palm talks about people are always searching for the city of happiness, but they don't realize that it's a state of mind. I love that quote also. That's, Rav Palm is talking there about flow. Um, and again, Rabbi Sachs talks about happiness as an attitude life as a whole. Joy lives in the moment. As Salinger once said, happiness is a solid. Joy is a liquid. Happiness is something you pursue. Joy is not. It discovers you. It has to do with a sense of connection to other people or to God. It comes from a different realm than happiness. It's a social emotion. It's the exhilaration we feel when we merge with others. It's the redemption of solitude. Flow refers to the state of being when we are at that magical sweet spot doing something that is giving us enormous pleasure but is a bit of a challenge. 
It's a little bit hard. It's a little bit of a stretch, but we're getting it. We're doing it. We're, we're in the zone. You may have moments of flow that you can think about where literally you lose your sense of time. You get embed, just totally engrossed in that crossword puzzle or that piece of artwork or that recipe you're cooking or that, that thing you're tinkering with under the hood of your car or, or that problem you're solving at work or that conversation you're having with someone where you're just there in the moment. It's going amazingly well. It's using everything you've got and it's great. Those moments, our, our whole life can't be flow. We can't, you know, some moments are just tedious. Some moments are just, you know, mowing the lawn and picking up after the children. Not every moment is flow. But looking for where in my life can I get that? Where in my life am I stretched, but I succeed, but I experience success? It's really important to find those things that give us, give us that. Think about when you, were, when you last felt engaged, challenged, but not overwhelmed. There's the, um, on the left-hand side, there's the... Um, the flow wheel. And I apologize. I thought that they were making copies of all these handouts for you. And only the people who have CE credits have it in their booklet. For those of you who want them, at the end, there's, an e- there's my website, my blog. If you blo- send a uh, note to me, I'll make sure that you get them electronically or I'll ask Menachem to give you, um, uh, you copies. But if you look at the wheel, you can see opposite of flow is apathy. And right near there is, is boredom. So on the bottom are low skill level. Oh, I have a pointer here. Where's my pointer? Here it is. At the bottom there, we've got the skill level from low skill to high skill. When we have, and, and here is the, um, oh, I can't read what they called it here. Here's the challenge level. So if I have low, challenge, low skill level and low challenge, I'm apathetic. If I have high skill level, but low challenge, I'm too relaxed. I, I don't, well, my pointer doesn't want to point. Um, and if my challenge level goes up, but my skill level doesn't, then I get worried or anxious. It's that top right corner where I'm in flow, where it requires a high, high skill level, it requires a high challenge level, but I'm succeeding. Um, okay. I've given you examples there. The best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur if a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Mahali, I'm going to try to say the name. I'm going to get it wrong. Shesta Mahali, she's a leading um, researcher on positive psychology on happiness, writes about flow all the time. So we can double our Fs, we can do our, our flow together with friends and family if we do our fun and find flow together with others. So we, we can get, you know, two and one. And if we happen to do it in a place where we're finding meaning, then that much better. We are, um, we're, we're adding all of our Fs together. What's I want to add or suggest a possible fifth F, and that's focus. There is a, a concept in psychology and in cognitive psychology that is, I find, very consistent with Jewish thought, and that's the notion that we make choices about what we focus on and what we think about. Now, I kind of take this for granted because, to me, again, this is a uh, both a psychological and a Jewish paradigm that we, we have the ability to choose what we think about and what we focus on. Having worked with people of all different faiths and all different cultures, I will tell you that I've had patients tell me that, well, it's karma. You know, there's no point in thinking differently. My thoughts are irrelevant. What happens will happen. Things are predetermined and fated. We don't believe those that way in, in our way of thinking so that we have the ability to make a decision about where we put our focus. Consider the following example. I wake up in the morning and I have a headache. Now, first of all, I can choose to be insanely focused on that headache or I can go about my business. I can also choose 
what I wrap around that headache in terms of the cognitive package. I can say it's allergy season, I get headaches, take a Claritin or a Tylenol, and hopefully it will get better. After all, the pollen count is through the roof. Now I've still got the headache. Maybe the medicines are going to make it better, but my anxiety level is not terribly high. Imagine if I wake up with the exact same headache, but my cognitive wrapping is different. I say, oh my gosh, I have a headache. I think it's on the right side. I think my left fingers are numb. I'm probably having a stroke. Some silent killer they won't even find if I go to the emergency room and do every test in the book. They'll send me home, but it will still be a ticking time bomb inside my head. What's my day going to be like? Nothing changed about the headache. What changed was the thought process. And that's a choice that I can make. It is not a natural choice because some of us are natural-born worriers, and the first thing that's going to pop into our head with a headache is stroke. The first thing that's going to pop into our head when we drive over a bridge is it's going to collapse. Terrorists are targeting me. You know, we're, we're always going to go to the dark side. So we have to fight that tendency in what we choose to focus on and where we put our attention. Um, again, I, I, uh, this is a quote from the Das Chochmah Musar from Rav Lubavitz, um, but I really owe the, the thought that Simcha and Sim Moach, these words together, the idea of Simcha, of happiness, and where you Sim your Moach, where you put your brain, go together from my colleague David Pelkovitz. Um, people become so used to being unhappy that they're unaware of the needless misery they call themselves. They imprison themselves by filling their minds with thoughts of resentment, hatred, envy, and desires. It's amazing how they tolerate such a life. They mistakenly think it's impossible for life to be any different. We may not be able to change the life. We may not be able to change the headache, but we can always change the cognitive wrapping around it. Not easy. These are mental habits that many of us have grown very accustomed to. We have reflexive worry or reflexive anger is the cognitive package we automatically go to, but there's no reason we can't challenge that. We can't say, wait a minute, I want to think about this differently today. And when those reflexive ideas come back, I'm going to argue against them. I'm going to push back against them. I'm going to say, well, maybe there's a only 1% chance that this headache is more than sinuses. Maybe it could, you know, if I think there's a 90% chance that it's something serious, could there only be an 85% chance? Can I do some internal bargaining like Avraham Avinu did for Stone, for the people of Stone? Could I, could I bargain a little bit? Rebecca. Um, is there some baseline level of um, physical needs being met, safety or comfort that allows a human to then sort of function and contemplate the positive psychology or, or benefit from the positive psychology? Um, I would have assumed yes, you know, sort of the hierarchy of needs, that certain things need to be met in order to sort of have the ability and privilege to benefit from these, but I wonder, based on some of the things you said, if that's true or not. Yeah, my experience has been, no, that at any moment in time, no matter how um, miserable life has dealt us the hand at that moment, people are able to find simcha, are able to find a different cognitive wrapping, are able to find meaning, find strength, um, to avoid those biases we talked about earlier and to be happy. And I, I could give you both from my own life and from my professional career example after example where the, I, I have to say the resilience of the human spirit not only surprises but totally invigorates me because what people are capable of doing in times of enormous distress. I did a lot of work post 9-11 and with firefighters, with teachers, with uh, first responders, and what people were able to have witnessed, to have survived, to have lived through, and then come out with amazing attitudes about life. What people who are dealing with horrible illnesses are able to say in, in the most incredible positive ways. So I, I think that 
it's a misnomer to say, and, and it, Baruch Hashem, we, God, you know, thank God, we do not have to say, well, I'll get to being positive when my life is good. You know, I'll get to be positive once I take care of, you know, this bum knee or my cancer or, you know, again, Loa Lena, we shouldn't have to experience any of these negative things. But I, I don't think that that is a requirement. I think that we can find um, ways in all the time. I'll just give you a, a tiny little example. Again, very, this is very personal. Um, my, I lost my father just about a year ago. Your site is this week. And he went through a period where he debilitated and my mom was watching him decline. And really, I mean, everyone in the family knew that he was not the man she married any longer, that he couldn't speak, that he couldn't eat. He, he was really very, very difficult to relate to. And yet my mother would find moments and she would say, see, See how he smiled at my blouse today? He loves this blouse. She had an ability to find, even in this horrible situation, her piece of happiness. I, I was absolutely astounded by it um, and thought of it as, as just an unbelievable testament to human spirit. And I have to say, watching, you know, having had a year or more of visiting hospitals and seeing other families go through uh, enormous crises and illness, Stunned, absolutely stunned by what people are able to do and, and how much, even in darkest moments, people are able to find uh, happiness. In fact, one might suggest that the reverse may be true to what Rebecca suggested. If we think about affluenza, if we think about the curse of having everything, that it may be that in good times, it's harder for us to be positive. That whenever, when we're feeling incredibly blessed, we can look at, oh, but, but that one is better. You know, but I wish I had that house or that car. So I, um, I, did I answer you? Kind of? Yes? Okay. Okay. So how are we going to get, how are we going to put all this together and be happy? And then we, we have time to discuss and answer questions. We are going to put, we're going to hold on to friends and family. We're going to make sure that we have the people in our lives that are meaningful to us and that matter and that we matter too, and we're going to hold on to them. We're going to let go of our anger and resentment, and we're going to work towards forgiveness, remembering that forgiveness doesn't mean I'm saying you're right. It doesn't mean I'm saying what you did is okay. It means I'm saying I'm not going to get sick over it. I'm not going to stew over it. We may not be happy with something you did. It may have been hurtful, but I'm moving on. I'm letting go. We're going to believe. We're going to find the tenets and the pieces of faith that matter to us, and we're going to grow them. We're going to grow our spirituality. We are going to find the things that fuel it, and we're going to believe. And we're going to engage. We're going to find fun and flow in our lives, Engaging in those activities that give us pleasure. Um, I have too many things that give me flow. I, I, I have a million hobbies. All of them are messy. None of them do I have enough time for. But there, people ask me all the time, why do you still make hand-painted wedding gifts? Because it brings me to that because it gives me that sense. It's spread out all over my dining room table. I owe a gazillion wedding gifts every year because I'm always behind, because I make them by hand. But I do it because I love the feeling I get when I do it. And the same with gardening and the same with too many things that are all messy and take too much time. And I, should, I have no business in my busy schedule doing them, but I need them. They nourish me. Um, and we're going to do all of that thinking about where's our focus. Where are we putting our mental thoughts? We're going to do some mental housekeeping and think about when our thinking goes to the dark place. We're going to clean out that closet. And if we do that together, we're going to find some happy trails. So there's, there's the my blog address, lifestoolbox.wordpress.com. 
if you want a copy of the slides or if you ask them if you didn't get the copy and also to, to read other things. Comments, thoughts, and questions. Yes. So there actually have been scientific um, studies done on people who are afraid for, some that know about it, some that don't know about it, but the people who are afraid for improve beyond the curve of what medicine is predicted. The other thing that I was thinking when we talking about is mother, you can almost make a case for making stuff up. You know, like if your mother didn't say, you know, if maybe your father didn't really like your shirt, you know, but just saying it, it's like putting on a smile when you feel lousy. Yep. It, it does do something. Yeah. The study you're alluding to, by the way, it's very controversial. There are numerous studies looking at the power of prayer. The one that you're talking about is the most controversial study because no one's been able to replicate it. It went as follows, and it's amazing. They had two groups of patients in the hospital um, with similar match for the same diagnoses, the same illness, the same prognosis. One group, they assigned people to pray. So they would say, you're going to pray for patient X. You didn't know the patient, and the patient didn't know they were being prayed for. Unlike, you know, normally we say to him for someone, they know we're saying to him for them. And we know who they are, and we have a name, and here, you're just praying for patient X. You don't know them, they don't know you. Another group of patients did not have anyone praying for them, and they didn't know no one was praying for them. The patients knew nothing. Review the charts of the two sets of patients. The patients who were prayed for had less need for pain medication, better outcomes, you know, got out of the hospital quicker. Now, nobody can explain this. Nobody can answer how did that happen. You know, you would think being prayed for, if you know it's happening, it can have all kinds of impacts, it gives you motivation. Nobody can explain it, but no one's been able to replicate it either. There have been other studies that have showed the power of prayer, but usually it's the person knows they're being prayed for, a community is praying for you, and they're the, the confound is that I firmly believe that being part of a community is curative. Feeling that you have people caring for you is curative. Having people look out for you is curative. So is it the prayer that did it, or is it being part of the... It's hard, it's hard to tease that out in those studies, but yes. Yes? A number of colleges present courses in positive psychology. As a dean, have you considered giving this talk as part of the orientation program for new graduate students? Oh, thank you. Um, um, the truth of the matter is that we teach positive psychology at the Azraeli Graduate School of Jewish Education. We're preparing teachers and leaders of Jewish day schools. It is part of our required course on values in Jewish education. So everybody gets this and much more because not only do we want them to do this, we want them to teach this to their students. And we're actually working right now with a graduate of our program who's developed a curriculum tied to the Jewish holidays on positive psychology for high school students with particular concepts for each holiday. So, you know, forgiveness might be on Yom Kippur and gratitude might be on Sukkot and different holidays have different, and we're working on uh, finalizing that curriculum, field testing it and getting it out to Jewish day schools. So th thank you for the um, endorsement that we're on the right track. I really think it is a gift that we give our students. And in today's world, more than ever before, they need tools to be able to deal with all of the, the uh, stress and the influences in, in today's life. Yeah. Well, Shemko, um, one of the things that we'd like to do is to go to towns where people were, you know, in a bad financial, physical state, oppressed, depressed, and he would go around and ask, so how are you? And he was waiting for people to say, Baruch Hashem, that the that, uh, feeling of gratitude automatically lifted them up. Right. Not the fact of that, he say, Baruch Hashem. Right. And that's the gratitude that you set up. Thank you. So, I'm a physician, and I've seen all, I've been exposed to a lot of patients. And, and you, I think you asked, is there ever a period of time when things are just so bad that you can't be happy? But I'm going to give a personal experience. You talked about your, your mom. I'll, I'll talk to you about my, my dad, who uh, he lived with me for his last uh, three months. I used to have terminal illness and was on hospice care. Um, he was dying. 
told me that I'm afraid of dying. And, um, and he was happy to never complain at all. And he was happy until the day that he passed away. Look, the, these are wonderful stories. There are, there are plenty of angry people in hospital beds. There are plenty of people who are in such horrible pain and so depleted that it's very hard for them to do this. Um, and, and, and no, you know, I, you know each, each of us has to do what we can. So I, I don't blame people who cannot be positive and who can't. But to the extent that we can help people move that needle and move towards that, we, we give them really a gift that allows them to live in a better way and, and to live healthier, to live longer. Um, and, and again, it's who people, who do the nurses want to visit in the hospital? Whose room do they want to be in? The crotchety patient who is complaining and fetching or the person who, thank you so much. No, I don't need another pillow. I'm good. You know, it, it, like you said, putting on a smile, it just changes your, it changes the attitude, but it also has the ripple effect that it changes the people around you. It totally changes the people around you. And, and I, I just want to go back to where I started that this notion of moving from looking at disease and illness and becoming a, a field, not only psychology, but becoming a public that focuses on health and resilience and well-being, I think is so critical. Because there, this is an area that we don't have to be unwell to get more well. You know, it doesn't, this is something that works for all of us. It works for all our students. It works in our educational system. It works in our lives. To think about how do I bring faith, fun, flow, gratitude, family, friend, how do I bring this into my life in a more significant way, even if it's already there? Even if I'm already doing it, how do I do a little bit more and a little bit better? Just makes us more resilient um, and better functioning. It's, it's good for our health. Ask for it if you need it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Seems like there's a fine line between not uh, resenting or grinning things and uh, being happy with yourself, accepting yourself, um, and the desire and, and kind of the value of wanting to improve. And I mean, in some way, that it's good. You know, like if, if I had missed this retreat. And let's say I regretted it horribly. So next year I'm going to come here, right? Right. And the more I regret it, the more I'm going to. So you're talking. You're talking about a very important, but a, a topic I really didn't touch today, and that's self-forgiveness and self-regret. Um, and you're right. If we have no um, self-judgment, then we're not motivated to change. We need to take ourselves to task and say oh my gosh, I messed up. I want to do better next time. On the other hand, we have to find the happy medium of if I, when I mess up, I'm like stupid, stupid, stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm an imbecile. I can't believe I missed that. I'm so stupid. I'm useless. I'm worthless. I'm horrible. That's not helpful either. So we have to find the place where we allow ourselves to fail and make mistakes, but we allow ourselves to grow from it. We push ourselves forward. Um, and I also think as, as an educator, a lot, a lot can be done in teaching people. My, my saying is not that failure is okay. What I say is that failure is essential. Failure is required. I'll just tell you, this is my funny story, teaching my youngest son to ride a bicycle. The first time he fell off the bicycle, just slightly histrionic, he says, I am never riding that stupid bicycle again. I'm not getting on that bicycle. You fall and it's stupid and I'm not getting on. And we live in a place where you have to ride a bike. I mean, just normal kids ride bikes. That's what they do and you have to learn to ride a bike. So I'm scratching my head. How do I get the kid back on the bike? What am I going to do? And then, thank goodness, I have a few brain cells more than the ch children do. And I say, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. I forgot to tell you. To learn to ride a bike, you have to get proprioceptive, I use fancy words, you have to get proprioceptive balance, and to do that, you have to fall at least four times between here and the corner. 
If you don't fall four times, your brain doesn't make the pathways with the neuronal synapses to learn how to balance. So you need to fall four times. He says, four times? I said, if you only fall three, it might be okay. But at least three falls between here and the corner. I made a failure an essential requirement of the task. And so instead of him beating himself up and saying, stupid, 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 now failure was okay. And after, you know, falling three times, I said, you know, if you do it only two times the next time, that's okay. And we backed off how many times he had to fall, but he fell plenty and he became a bike rider. So I think we have to find that sweet spot of pushing ourselves. It's a very important point, and thank you for, thank you for raising it. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.